Love that. That was great. Thank you all. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. My name is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor. I think you met me in the pool. Uh, Welcome to all of you. So glad you're here. We are finishing up a message series today entitled Reflect. We've been talking about Christian maturity, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to grow in Christ, and that brings us to uh, this word reflect, R-E-F. L-E-C-T. We've been talking about this for for several weeks. Let me introduce you to a little lady, and by little lady, I mean little lady. Um, Her name is Jodi Amgi. She lives in uh, India. She is now officially the new shortest woman alive. If you notice, she's leaning up against a two-liter bottle drink. Uh, This lady is uh, 21 years old. She just had her birthday, which makes her the new shortest lady because they didn't consider her an adult until she was 21. So she's the new one. She's 21 years old, just had a birthday. Uh, She is approximately 20, 24 inches tall. Some of you had newborn babies that were that many inches. So so the bottom line is she's never grown. She is the size of your typical infant, except that she can talk and she can walk and she uh, apparently has a rather full life. She's just little. She's cute as a button. I would love to hang out with her. You could put her in your pocket. She could sit on my desk while I work. I mean, she's just little, just very, very little. And a beautiful smile. Uh, If you're short and single, guys, she's still single. I mean, so she's out there for you. Uh, Too bad the shortest man alive is about her height, but he has, you have to Google this picture. God bless him. He's about her height, but he has normal-sized feet, and it's the strangest-looking thing, so I don't see them getting together. But, but, but bottom line, when you look at her, again, she's cute, uh, she's happy, and I'm really, really happy for her that she's able to find happiness and acceptance of herself, even, even uh, at her height. But I just want you to understand, even as you look at her, there's something wrong with her. I mean, you just got to recognize that she was born with a disorder that never let her grow. And, and, and even though she's happy and pretty and, and now becoming world famous, there's something wrong with her. There's something wrong with her. Normal, healthy human beings grow. And, and this failure to grow indicates that there is something very, very wrong with her, with her physical body. God bless her soul, but there's something wrong with her body. It's, it's interesting because we can sort of make us an analogy to our spiritual lives. Bottom line, spiritually, all of us are supposed to grow. We're always supposed to grow. Now, if... Spiritual growth were as obvious as physical growth, then we could open the doors of any church and look in and we could instantly see who's growing and who's not. And honestly, if you looked at your typical church in the United States, we would probably find a whole lot of spiritual, what's the political correct word? I don't think it's midget anymore. We don't say midget, elf, dwarf, hobbit, um, little person. Uh, If you open the doors of your typical church, it's filled, I I believe, with people who have failed to grow in their faith. We are, many of us, very, very spiritually stunted in in, in our growth. So if spiritual height, spiritual stature were as obvious, maybe it would be different. But this has been the point of this message series, Reflect. There are signs of growth, and they are outward signs. It's not something that we have to guess about. There are rather biblical characteristics which are a part of every person who grows and matures and becomes more like Christ. And that's what we've been talking about with with Reflect. R was relationship. As you grow in Christ, you become deeper in your ability to love God and 
love others. E was evangelism, a mature believer, uh, increasingly lives a life that attracts others to Christ. Uh, F, fruit of the Spirit, a mature believer has the very character of Christ formed inside of them so that they become more like Christ, more loving and peaceful and gentle and, and, and patient and all of those things that that the fruit of the spirits speak of. L is listening. A mature believer grows in that ability to listen for God's voice in Scripture and in prayer. It's, it's a lifetime of listening for the voice of the God whom you serve, the Christ that you love, listening. E is for edification. The mature believer learns that their life is truly about building up others and, and living that life to encourage and strengthen others in the in the body of Christ. C is Christ-likeness. We all imitate Christ in everything we do and everything we say. We're growing to become more like him. And the last one is today. The, the T is for transformation. And in some ways, this one becomes very, very difficult for us because, of course, the word transform means to change, change. A mature believer seeks the gospel transformation of the world. I, I know you people. I know most of you very, very well. And I know how you look at the world and you think, oh, my goodness, if, if something doesn't happen soon, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. The world, everybody's so mean and self-centered and materialistic. And you're right. You're exactly right. God needs to do something about the world. But here it is. The mature believer seeks the gospel transformation of the world beginning with self. Many of us, when we look at what is wrong with the world, we assume that we're part of the solution and the world has the problem. But that's not exactly the way the gospel portrays my life and your life. All of us have the same disease, the same problem. It is the problem that the world is afflicted with, and the problem is sin. We all have that same problem. So you and I are not a part of the solution. We're a part of the problem. Jesus is the solution. And so this transformation of the world begins with me. It begins with you. Yes, Jesus wants to save and change the world. He's going to start in you. He's going to start in me. It is a life of daily confession, turning from sin and doing God's work in the world. It's a life of transformation. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 speak very much about this change, this transforming power of the gospel. My favorite verses, the verses that drive our church are Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. We read these all the time. These are the verses that come right after that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Listen. Paul speaking, he says, I, I a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. However... He has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That's why the scriptures say when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And, and the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. 
The apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do God's work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Healthy, growing, full of love. Back up with me to the verse one. Let's start right there. Paul says, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. Lead a, a, a life worthy Point number one, let's just start right there. Your calling to be a Christian is a calling to live a life worthy, worthy of Christ. It is a high calling. You must understand this. When Paul says that it's a high calling and we must live a life worthy of Christ, the word worthy he uses has to do with the scales. It's a Greek word that has to do with the scales. So it's kind of a word picture. And what Paul is saying is, if you take everything that Christ has done for you and you put that on one side of the scales, everything that Christ has done for you, and if you're fuzzy on that, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are all about what Christ has done for you, and it's amazing. And you put all of that on one side of the scale. What Paul is saying is your life on this side should balance that out. All that Christ has done for you on this side, what you do for Christ on this side, it ought to balance out. You should live a life that balances, a life that's worthy of the high calling into which you've been called in Christ. Now, I think we're all honest enough to say, ain't no way. There's just no way that I can be worthy of what Christ has done for me. Again, if you're not clear what Christ has done, you need to get back to the scriptures. He left heaven for me. He died on the cross for me. And all of this on this side, and somehow my life is supposed to balance that out, that's not going to happen. That, that worthiness is just something that I'll never, ever be able to achieve. And honestly, it's not the point. I'm not expected, not expected necessarily to balance those scales. I, I can't, you can't either. Christian life is not about necessarily achieving that perfection on this side of heaven, but it is about making progress, you understand? It's about striving to, to live a life that's worthy, even though I know I'll never be worthy. We're talking about worth, so it comes down to what are the worthy things in your life? What matters most to you? And then soon we're talking about priorities, understand? Your priorities are the things that matter most. And, and this honestly is where many of us fail in living a life worthy of our calling in Christ because we've never made Christ a priority in our life. He may be worthy, but he doesn't seem to be worth much in our everyday lives. You know what I'm saying? Look at your priorities. 
And many of us, even though we claim to follow Christ and even though we claim that he is our Lord and our Savior, we actually don't prioritize him in our lives in, in any way. Other things are more worthy than our spiritual life. Let's just be honest. For some of you, it's, it's your job. You live, eat, drink, sleep, work. It's all you think about. Maybe it's because you love your identity at work or you just love the work or maybe you just love money. Some of us just live for money. Money is worth everything to us. We like to have the power to buy things. Some of you, it's just family. Priority number one for you is family, and that sounds right to you, but it's not so right when you realize that your top priority is supposed to be Christ. Some of us, our only priority is ourselves. We, we, we don't necessarily work or do much of anything other than think about how we can please ourselves. But do you understand that if you are to follow Christ and grow in the way he wants you to grow, he must matter more than everything else. He is your top priority. You're supposed to live a life where the scales sort of, sort of try to at least balance out what he's done for you. It's a high calling. Now, this commitment to Christ is in itself a very important commitment to uh, a life of lasting, personal, changing, growing. Did you understand? It is a constant life of personal growing, changing. I, I know some of you really struggle with change. I, some of, I, I know you all, I'm your, I've been your pastor 18 years. I know that some of you still drive a pickup truck with an eight-track tape player in it. You're, you're going to go all the way to heaven listening to the Conway Twitty on an eight-track tape. I'm not making it up. One of our guys does that. I just think it's awesome. But, but, but I, I understand how some of us are so just resistant to change. We've sort of seen a lot of change in our lives, but we've sort of come this far and we're done. We're no longer advancing. It doesn't matter what kind of phone they come out with next. We are still keeping the one we got. You understand? We're done. We're done. It doesn't matter how many channels other people get. You're going back to rabbit ears. You understand? Some of us just do not change. We do not like change. But you have to understand that your Christian life is a commitment to a lasting and personal growing because you're supposed to be like Christ, and you're not like Christ yet. I'm not either. We all have a long way to go. Now, you're thinking that maybe you'll just push pause, or you're thinking that you're good enough, and therefore you'll just stay like you are and then see Jesus in heaven. But you don't understand. Jesus didn't do all that he's done for you so that you could stay like you are. He saved you to make you like he is. He has so much more for you. Who do you think you are that you can just freeze time, just pause your spiritual life? It's not even an option. If you are not growing spiritually, you're dying spiritually. If you're not making progress, you are losing ground. It just doesn't work that you can just stay where you are. It's a commitment to changing. It's a commitment to growing. And if you're not growing as a believer, you're not following Christ. It demands change. You have to change every single day. And if you're not willing to change, you can't be his disciple. It is a commitment to lasting, personal, growing, personal change. It gets even harder. It is also a commitment to God's people. It's a commitment to the church. Commitment to Christ is commitment to his people, commitment to the church. 
You think, I don't know about that, Brother Tim. I, I'm kind of my own person. I'm kind of like an old cat. I just like to sort of keep to myself. And I come to church, and I sort of find a seat away from everybody. And, and uh, I, I know that other people enjoy fellowship, but, you know, I, I don't need all that. Well, well, this is where you have to understand you don't have another option. There isn't an option where you follow Christ, but you don't have to get mixed up with everybody else who's following Christ. It's actually very clear. If everyone is in Christ, but becomes a part of everyone else who's in Christ. If I belong to Christ and you belong to Christ and we belong to each other, that's unavoidable. It's not as if I can just live my life and ignore you or, or cut you off or pay no attention. It doesn't work that way. We need each other. We are connected because we are in Christ together. So when you come to Christ, you make a commitment to him. You automatically make a commitment to his people, to the church. Now, when I say church, some of you are just thinking about Sunday morning. and You're thinking, I'm trying to say that you need to come to church more often. Maybe you do, but that's not my point. I'm not talking about church attendance. Church is not a building that you come to. Church is the people that Christ makes. It's when, when Jesus himself says that he tears down all the walls, and he takes multiple people and brings them together and, and makes one people. Do you understand? This is the church. We are the living, breathing body of Christ. It's all of us together. The church is people. And we need each other. And it has something to do with what we do on Sunday morning. But let me tell you, Sunday morning is just not even the half of it. It's everything that happens after we leave this place and we still need each other. Notice that when Paul talks about the gifts that Christ gives the church in this passage, he doesn't list talents. When you and I think of gifts, we usually think in terms of singing and playing the musical saw and preaching and all of these things. But he doesn't talk about talents. Instead, he just simply says, these are the gifts, preachers and apostles and teachers. Notice he just mentions people. The gifts are people. We are one another's gift from God to each other. He always gives us exactly what we need. Gifts are people. We're gifting each other's life. We need each other. Had Bible school this past week, man. I love it. I love our kids so much, and I love Bible school. I get here early, and my job is playground duty. I just go play with kids. I, I love being the pastor for them. They are so much more fun than all of you put together, man. They're fun. So we have a playground out back here, and we've got a little play set kind of on the back side of that. And back there, if you've never gone, you should go. There is this big green slide. It's a tunnel slide. And I mess with the kids. You know, the little kids come up to go in there and say, hey, be careful. Yesterday, kids went into that tunnel of darkness, and we never saw them again. You know, just messing with kids like that. And that just, you know, they just jump in just to prove me wrong. It's awesome. Anyway, one day, there's this long line for the tunnel of darkness, and uh, this little boy came in. He came in in a bad mood. I know y'all don't understand this, but it happens. He just, foul mood, just foul. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He got in the line for the slide, and everybody loves the green slide. I mean, we just wait in line just to go down it. But this kid waited in line, no smile, no joy, no nothing. And then he got up there to the front. It was his turn. And he turned around. This little boy turned around. And he put his backside in that tunnel. And he wedged his little four pudgy limbs in there. And he just blocked it. And he stood and just looked at us. And he didn't say anything. He just snarled. <laughs> what was he saying? My slide. My slide. He was shutting that thing down. He had just decided that was his and nobody else was going down it. So he backed himself in there and he just occupied it. Ugh. Now you're thinking right now, was this my kid? And yes, it was your kid. As a matter of fact, it was your kid. He was in there. Ugh. Well, other kids are just kind of confused for a moment because it's a playground. 
We're supposed to have fun. And the slides are a place where everybody just takes turns. I mean, we all get this, but this kid wasn't getting it. Just in there. For a while, kids just looked at him like, are you nuts? And then kids would like walk up and just sort of like touch him. Not push him. I wanted to push him. You just want to get him down the slide, but he's just, and if anybody approached him, he'd growl like a hyena guarding a carcass. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And for as long as we allowed that to endure, this kid was just this black hole that sucked all the fun out of that slide for a while. Where would he learn something like that? Man, it is so typical of of almost any of us who at one point or another just sort of put ourselves in the church as if it's all ours. And we put our pudgy little arms in there and we growl at anybody who approaches us. We just dare anybody to move us. I mean, I, I see that sometimes in church. I've been in church a long time. Don't you see that too? I've been that little guy at times and you have too. It's just those moments when something selfish kicks up in us and all of a sudden we begin to to want to say, I'm owning this. I'm shutting this thing down. It's going to be about me now. And, And that is never how the body of Christ works. In the very moment when you or I lock ourselves in there and start insisting that everybody pay attention to us, at that very moment, we begin to contradict the gospel. We begin to interrupt the flow of everything Christ wants to do in the church. We just can't act like that. Do you understand? It is a commitment to his people, a commitment to the church. It goes further. Come back with me. Verse 1. I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Verse 3. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. We're still talking about Christian maturity, but notice where this text takes us. We have to get this fundamental principle. The burning heart of God is unity. It's the burning heart of God. If you read back on the very last night of Jesus' life on earth when he was praying and he prays for the church, what does he pray for? What does he ask that God would do for the church? That we would be made one. Lord, make them one. It's the burning heart of God, our unity. And notice that in this particular passage, Paul says that we have to maintain that, make every effort to keep that unity, to keep, keep yourselves united. It's the idea that Christ has already given us everything we need for unity. Our job now is just not to mess it up. We just can't mess it up. We have to make every effort. That means simply do whatever it takes. Do absolutely whatever it takes to maintain the unity of the church. We're still talking about maturity, so stay with me. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united. Okay, well, how am I supposed to make every effort to keep the whole church united? I mean, I can't control you people. 
I can't do anything for you people. I mean, how am I supposed, I mean, honestly, sometimes this pastor, it, it feels like I'm with a third grade Sunday school class. I mean, sometimes people don't act like grown-ups, and sometimes people just act all janky and get mad and their feelings hurt. I mean, it, it, how in the world can any one of us keep everybody else united? Well, it's kind of simple. If you notice the scripture, a very simple principle, the secret of keeping unity in the church is to control your own behavior. It's the secret, keeping unity in the whole church. In other words, I can't do much to keep any one of you from going down to that green slide and putting your rear end in it and stopping it up and going, ugh. I can't keep you from doing that, but I can keep myself from doing that. Understand? I maybe can't stop that guy, but I don't have to be that guy. And this is exactly what Paul says. You always be humble. Always be humble. What's it mean to be humble? Some of us have a, a, a false idea. We think that humility is like if you're a really, really good ball player and somebody says, wow, you're a great ball player. And you say, no, no, I'm not a very good ball player. You think that that's being humble. Actually, if you are a good ball player, it's just being dishonest. You understand? It's not humility if you're a really good singer and somebody says, wow, you're a good singer. No, no, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. That, that's not humility. That's just crazy. That's just lying. You understand? If you have strength to say that you don't have strength, that's not humility. It's, it's dishonesty. But many people think that's humility. They just say, you know, no, no, I'm not all that much. I can't do all that. And they imagine that's humility. And that's not exactly what humility is. I think humility has more to do with the fact that if I happen to be a good ball player, which I'm not. I mean, I'm really not. I'm not being humble. I am not a good ball player. So this is just an illustration. But if I were a really good ball player and somebody said, Brother Tim, you're a good ball player or, or whatever, humility doesn't make me deny that. Humility just, just doesn't take any more joy in the fact that I'm a good ball player than if my brother Rod's a good ball player. Do you understand? I don't begin to think that, that my gifts or my strengths raise me above other people. Humility just has this incredible ability to find its place among everybody else, just beside everybody, without trying to be better or trying to be above, or trying to make yourself the center. Understand? Jesus is the perfect example. He's the Son of God, came down and just became one of us. He served us. Humility just doesn't try to be above everybody, just right there beside him. You don't have to lie if you happen to be a good ball player or singer or whatever you do. You just can't be a little more excited about the fact that you have gifts when other people have gifts too. Understand? It's humility. And always be gentle. Always be gentle. Instantly, the Greek word for always, it means always. Be gentle. Gentleness. Man, we just need more gentle people. I, I guess gentle just boils down to people know that you won't hurt them. When people know you're gentle, they know that you won't hurt them. And that's not just physical. I mean, some of you could hurt me physically, but, but any of you could hurt me emotionally or spiritually. And honestly, sometimes, even in the body of Christ, even in church, people are not very gentle. You ever had that person in your life, they say, I, I need to have a word with you. And the minute they say it, you think, oh my goodness, I'm in so much trouble. You have to start defending, getting defensive, because you know you're about to be attacked, you know? You don't want to be that person that attacks other people. You, you always be gentle. That just means that people know that whatever you have to say to them, whatever you need to do, that you will always love them and have their best interest in mind. You're not going to hurt them. 
Always be humble, always be gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Making allowance for each other's faults. In other words, I understand that you're not going to be perfect. And you must understand that I'm not perfect. And we have to leave some room for the imperfection. Growing in Christ is not about perfection. It's about progress. I'm not where I need to be, but, but please, God, make me better than I used to be. Do you understand? I'm just moving forward. In this process, it gets ugly, and and we're going to make a lot of mistakes. I'm going to disappoint you, and you're going to hurt my feelings, but we make allowance for that. This is what Paul says. You leave room for that. You just accept that for the sake of love. Understand? For the sake of love. Bottom line, I love you, and you love me, so whatever else we have to put up with, we just put up with it for the sake of love. I'll leave you some space. i cut you some slack. It's what Paul says. It's what we do. We make every effort to keep ourselves united in the Spirit. We put everything into holding this together, this love that we share as a church. And you're sitting there right now thinking, well, Brother Tim, that's just not who I am. I wish I was humble. I wish I was more gentle. But as it turns out, I'm just like my grandfather. Man, my grandfather would tell you anything, I mean, whatever he thought, it just came out, man. And if it hurt or whatever, I mean, that's just how he talked. And turns out I'm like my grandfather. Yeah. Can we talk about that a second? Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could be like your grandfather. You understand? You're supposed to be like Christ. And I agree with you. I'm not always humble. And I'm not always gentle. And I don't always leave enough room for people to make mistakes, and I probably don't do everything I can to maintain unity. But I need to change. And you need to change. You understand? It's not enough just to say, that's not how I am. I'm just not gentle. Man, I'm just keeping it real. No, no, you're just mean. You know, you're just mean. And while we're at it, your grandfather was mean. You know, and don't even bring up your grandma. I I mean, you know, these are not our examples. Christ is, I don't know your grandma. She's a lovely lady, I'm sure. Christ is our example. You and I need to change. If you're not always humble, you need to change. You need to grow in humility. You're not always gentle. You gotta change. You gotta do better. You don't always do a good job of getting along with other people. You gotta get better at that for the sake of love. I mean, this is God's word speaking here. You, you must change. But the good news of the gospel is you, you can change. You're not stuck just being like your grandfather. You understand? Christ gives you the power to be like Christ. You must change. You, you can change. This is This is the message of the gospel. Be patient with each other. Make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Now come down to verse 13 with me. This will continue until we all come to such unity. All right, stay with me. When I first started preparing this sermon series months ago, I didn't see this coming. I didn't know that this is where the scripture would take us. I think it's rather amazing. Notice what happens here. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature. 
We'll come to such unity that we will be mature. Very, very simply, your maturity depends upon our unity. Do you see that? Your maturity, my maturity, it depends upon our unity. Paul makes those things uh, absolutely linked together. You can't separate them. That means if in our church we can't maintain unity, we don't grow. I'm not talking about growing in numbers. I'm talking about growing as we're supposed to grow spiritually. We become a midget church, you know. If we will not be united, if we can't love each other and be humble and gentle and all of these things, then we can't grow. The growth depends upon the unity. Maturity comes with unity. So what's the secret of that? Paul goes further, and I love it. Follow me. Then we will no longer be immature. And he talks a little bit about what it means to be immature. He uses things like childish. We're not going to be like children. And honestly, sometimes at church, it's like we act like children. It's like grown-ups who never grew up. And Paul says once we reach maturity in Christ, we don't act like children anymore. And we're not tossed and blown around. The idea is that we're, we become grown-up, mature, and we become stable, no longer instable, not blown around, not happy one day, sad the next, mad at me one day, love me the next. I mean, you just become sort of a stable, secure person, no longer driven by circumstances and mood, you know? Become stable, will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies, so clever they sound like truth. Verse 15, instead, okay, here's the big word, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. So instead of being immature, what do we do? Instead, what do we do instead? It really boils down to something very, very simple. Most important thing we can do for one another is to speak the truth in love. Is it even possible that somehow if you boiled spiritual maturity down, it comes down to something like a dedication to truth and love? Instead of all this immaturity, Paul says, we're going to speak the truth in love and grow in every way more and more like Christ. We speak the truth in love. Bottom line, I need you to tell me the truth. This is what Paul is saying. This is where maturity comes from. I need people in my life in the most desperate way. I need people who will tell me the truth in love. These go together, but it's very, very difficult to hold them together sometimes. You probably have people in your life who'll tell you the truth, just not with love. And that is not necessarily what Paul's talking about. That's not truth and love. That's not maturity. That's meanness. When you speak the truth without love, that's usually just in an effort to hurt people. That's not maturity. That's not what Paul's talking about. Sometimes we love each other without truth. In other words, I don't ever tell you what I need to tell you. I just continue to act like I love you, but I don't love you enough to tell you the truth. And that's not maturity either. That's hypocrisy. Understand? We hold these together. This is the key to maturity. We speak the truth in love. This is how the church operates. We need this so much. Primarily, I need you to tell me the truth because I have a problem, and it's the same problem you have. It's a sin problem. I have a desperate sin problem. Now, yes, I'm a believer, and yes, Christ has set me free from that, and yes, his grace covers me, absolutely. But understand, I'm still growing. I'm still recovering from the man I used to be. I'm still dealing with my sin problem through the power Christ gives me. But the problem is, when it comes to myself, the sin problem is always worse than I know. It's always worse than I know because the, the, the very heart of sin is self-deception. 
I always convince myself that whatever I'm doing, my intentions are good, or whatever I'm doing, it can't be that bad, or whatever I'm doing, God will forgive me. I mean, I have this amazing way of ignoring my own sin. Now, the amazing thing is, I can see your sin. I can see your sin from a mile away in the fog. I can see your sin. I just don't see my sin very well. It's, it's that self-deception, that, that self-blindness that keeps me from seeing myself as I am. I always see myself as better, further along than I am. You're probably the same way, and, and this is what happens when we come to church. I, I think at church, there's this big sin that we all begin to cooperate in. I, I'd call it the sin of conniving. To connive is to cooperate, to do evil. And so in a way, this is what happens in church. We, we connive together. And our conniving looks like this. I just sort of agree to help you ignore your sin. And you agree to help me ignore my sin. So in other words, we don't ever bring stuff up. It would be okay for me to stand up. I mean, I, I could preach a blistering sermon on homosexuality. And you all go, Brother Tim, you need to preach that more often. But if I were to preach the same sort of intense sermon on gossip, we could lose members. Or if, if we talked about gluttony, I mean, gluttony is like the sin that nobody ever talks about, especially right before the potluck. You understand? It's this sin of conniving where, where basically we continue to focus all of our attention on other people's sins, but we don't ever get serious about the sins for which you and I are most guilty. So we can come to church Sunday after Sunday and we can worship, but we never really call attention to the way our lives Monday through Saturday contradict our worship. We just find a way to never ever call attention in a way that would make somebody feel bad or, or feel embarrassed. So, so when it comes right down to it, we don't speak the truth in love around here. We tend to avoid the truth, at least the truth that would set us free. Now, now remember, it was a Jack Nicholson movie where Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. Remember that? You can't handle the truth. And a lot of us have that, that attitude that people can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I need you to tell me the truth. In love, you need me to tell you the truth in love. I've been pastor for 18 years. When I came as pastor, and I don't want to drag up old stuff, but when I came as pastor, the pastor right before me um, had gotten into some moral failing. He lost his family. He lost his ministry. He lost everything just like that. And when I came, you all were devastated because you loved him. We still love him. He's, he, he's recovered. He's, he's doing well. I love him. It was a horrible time in his life, and, and he just seemed to lose everything. I remember when I first came, and I would talk to you all because I knew, I, I, I knew that brother. I'd known him since high school. And I would just kind of say, what happened to him? I, I mean, how does, how does anybody just blow up their life like that in, in just a, a day's time? How does that even happen? And the odd thing is some of you would tell me stories. You'd say, you know, I don't know how it happened, but I remember one day I saw a brother, he, he did this, and it seemed really out of character. I noticed it, but I, I never said anything. Honestly, so many of you as church members, you saw stuff in him, and you knew his heart, and you, you knew him 
and you knew that there were certain patterns that didn't fit anymore. But nobody said anything to him. I'm not blaming you for the failure of, 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 of somebody else, but, but I'm just saying, please, if you ever see anything in me that doesn't fit, I mean, you know my heart, don't you? You know how I love my family? You know how I love my ministry? You know how I love you? Would you let me drive my life off a cliff? Would you not stand in front of me and wave your arms and say, Pastor Tim, there seems to be something wrong. I love you. I mean, would you not put the comfort of our friendship aside just long enough to tend to the, to, to the hurting of my soul? And that's not just me. We all need that. You just got to have somebody in your life that will tell you the truth. Even if the truth makes you mad, even if the truth hurts, it's the truth that comes with love, and that sets people free. And if we won't tell each other the truth, then we're useless to one another. And for that matter, we become a useless church because if we don't speak the truth in love, we can't mature in Christ. We can't grow. We can't change. We just continue to give each other the impression that everything is okay. And sometimes, even most of the time, it's not that okay. So Paul says, we speak the truth in love. And in doing that, we just grow more and more and more like Christ. And in this way, he says, the body, all of the parts fit together perfectly. United and healthy and full of love. The, the, the body, he says, every part, that's me and you, we just fit together perfectly. United and healthy and full of love. Do, do you see that? In my life, if I'm not growing spiritually, there's something wrong with me. You may see that better than I see it. That's why I need you. That's why you need me. We just can't grow without each other. We'll never do it without each other. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, it sounds simple, but it's hard. We're not very good at dying to ourselves. We're not very good at not thinking about ourselves. We're not very good at humility and gentleness. We don't overlook each other's faults very well. Lord, as simple as all of these things sound, they become very, very difficult for people as sinful and selfish as we are. But Jesus, we can change. <clears throat> we understand that the promise of the gospel as if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Everything is made new. So, Lord Jesus, make us new. Lord, we know that you want to change the whole world. You want to save the world. Lord, we know that you want to change and do something remarkable in this church. And, Lord, I'm begging you to do something in this church. But I know that before you can change this church, you have to change me. You have to change me. So, Lord Jesus, change me. Make me more like you day by day, more and more like you. Give me courage to speak the truth, but always, always from a heart of love. And may we together, Lord, 
do whatever is necessary to protect unity, move ourselves toward maturity, all for the sake of love. Lord Jesus, I pray that you speak to our hearts, show us the areas in which we must change, and then Lord Jesus, transform us to be like you. We pray in your precious name.